Please won't someone tell me I'm okay. Hi, and welcome to Tell Me I'm Okay. It's a show to soothe your worried soul. I'm your host, Andra Whipple, and on this show, we tackle all of our biggest and smallest anxieties through learning. Every episode, I ask an expert on something I'm afraid of to come discuss my fears and tell me whether or not I'll be okay. And today we're talking with a really fun expert on the prehistoric record to ask her a big philosophical question. We're all wondering, are human beings doomed to be evil? And of course, in addition to the expert, I'm bringing on a very fun friend who shares my fear. Today, my friend is Mark Warzeka! You may have heard ads for his comedy school, The Sketch School, right on this very podcast, because that's right, it is our sponsor, my friend, really all-around cool dude, Mark Warzeka. Welcome, Mark. Andra, I'm so thrilled to be here because I have been a enormous fan of this show. Since oh, I've listened I to every that. episode. I love the I love the concept of the show because every time I listen to it, I always learn new things. And every time I listen to it, it's like a it's like a little therapy session. I leave oh. <laughs> I leave having laughed a little and learned something and feeling a little bit better about the world. Oh my god, yes. That is that is the dream of the pod is just to make everybody feel a little breath of relief. But before we get to the breath of relief, the way that the structure works is we must talk about why we are not relieved. What are we stressed out about? What are we worried about? And I think like every time I open Twitter or listen to NPR or like tune into the news at all, I'm just like human beings disappoint me on a new level. Like I am I am yeah. even more and more just fucking scared about all of us and yeah. what we're capable of. Yeah, 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 me too. And it's a time where it feels like a deep, like, like, I guess like macro, I do find myself wondering a lot right now. Yeah. Like, is who we are as a species? Yeah. At the end of the day, are we essentially violent and combative and uh, prone to self-destruction? And like, the times that we have peace and the times that we have democracy, is that a complete aberration? Yeah, yeah. Are we always, are we always violent? Have we always been violent? And like, that's what I'm so excited to talk about, talk about with Professor Spikins, because like, you know, you hear these stories about like, well, we, uh, human beings are inherently bad. Like we genocided the Neanderthals. Like we are, we are murder machines. And that scares the shit out of me. Yeah, me too. Because like, are we just going back into uh, as things feel more violent right yeah. now for us in our culture and society and, and, and potentially like there's a potential at least for a third world war right it's now. It's very fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, or a it. civil war right now. And it's like, mm -hmm. is that our default state? Is that yeah. our default state as a species? And yeah. I, I sort of am terrified that it is. I mean, I think about this a lot and, yeah. and we're just reverting back to truly where, what, it, who it is we really are, which yeah. is like these animals who want to be at war. Yeah. Yeah. Are we always just going to be looking at people who are different than us and trying to fight them and be so angry with each other? And, and are we just gonna, are we just gonna civil war ourselves out of existence? I am scared. Yeah. I am so scared. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. I think it's time to bring on our expert, Penny Spikins. She is a professor of the Archaeology of Human Origins at University of York. She has a new book coming out called Hidden Depths, The Origins of Human Connection. And it's open access so anyone can read it online. Just Google it. Hi, Penny. It's so nice to see you. Hi, Andra. I'm so excited that you're here. I think your research is so fascinating and it really does address a question that I think a lot of people are feeling burdened with right now, which is like, are we doomed? Are we, are <laughs> Do you know we... what? You know what? You're totally right. A lot of people are burdened with this. And, you know, all of my students are asking us this as well. You know, I think a lot of people that do the really, really deep time story of our species have people asking us, like, is there some good news out there? Only it does look pretty bad at the minute. Yeah, we want hope. We need some hope. We need a sliver of hope. A sliver of hope. Yeah, that's the message I'm getting from a lot of people. Have you got a sliver of hope to to give me? And uh, yeah, there is, there is. I think there's a huge sliver of hope as long as you take the big time perspective. We've lived for thousands and thousands of years sustainably with the environment in relative peace without like, you know, big disasters happening by and large. And we could be like that. So if you could only like leap forward, you know, maybe a century, maybe two centuries, (laughs) I think the news is good. That really brings me to my first question, which is like, you know, we're in the middle of pa- the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, there's wars going on. It's like everything feels like people are throwing away a care and concern for each other's well-being. Um, have people always been this way? Have people always been scary murder machines? <laughs> well, actually, do you know what? I think most people who kind of look at mammals in the sort of big picture would say we're really friendly. You know, I mean, if you imagine mm-hmm. most animals that we know about have their own little area of space with like their family and yeah. like their relatives and like they just they might not be aggressive to others, but they try and avoid them. I mean, even things like you think of, of things like howler monkeys, you know, they like go to the tops of trees and make a big noise to say, this is my bit, you know, that's your bit. We're going to keep it separate. And yeah, we're they're amazing. always like barking and, and doing all of that like loud, stay away from my space stuff. Exactly. We're amazing. We do not do that. If you put, if you said, okay, let's put 100 people in a room and see what happens. What happens is not that they tear each other to pieces or like hide under the things. <laughs> it's that you call it a conference. Like, ah. you know, <laughs> and everybody faces the front. Yeah, is that, we're is really, that like, really tolerant. From an evolutionary perspective, does that has that been helpful to us as a species? Well, that's a good question because actually I don't really, myself, I, I'm not convinced that this level of tolerance that we have has been the picture for a particularly long time in an evolutionary past. And by a long time, oh, I'm going to use I'm going to use lengths of time and you're going to go, wow, that's a huge long time. And I'm going to go, well, no, that's quite recent when you think of millions of years. <laughs> but like, you know, it looks as though up till about 100,000 years ago, we were mainly going for the let's mostly avoid you know, okay. other groups kind yeah. of plan. Like we keep out of their way, occasionally have contact with them, but mainly keep out of their way. And it's only after around 100,000 years ago that we really start to see evidence that like materials are moving, people are moving. There just seems to be lots more contact. So this kind of like being able to get on with people that you haven't known your entire life and you're not related to is not, you know, it's relatively new to be doing that a lot of the time. That's such an interesting shift. Do you know, like, can you tell us about what happened that that changed that all of a sudden or what feels like all of a sudden to me? 
it well, it does feel like all of a sudden. Um, though I guess there there was things happening before. There was some bits of contact, but we don't really know why the change happened. I mean, there are lots of different theories. It can have been ecological changes, or it could have been something to do with the way our brains just tip to certain balance. But we do know that. For certain reasons, after rough, sometime after 300,000 years ago, there were things starting to happen and then more mm-hmm. so 100,000 years ago. And we start to see genetic changes that are oh, similar weird. to the genetic changes that you see when animals become domesticated. You know, so if you think of comparing like, you know, a, a, a domestic dog with a wolf, the yeah. domestic dog is way more friendly to lots of other dogs. You know, so we've got those kind of changes starting to happen. I didn't realize you could see those things in. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but I feel like you didn't. Even, I didn't know you could see those things in genes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same. Yeah, we've got the genetic changes taking place in humans um, that are kind of like convergent evolution. You know, they're also happening in domesticated species like dogs, and also in these sort of friendly species of chimpanzee bonobos that are, are actually can be friendly to other groups of bonobos at the edges of their territories. So. We've got those genetic changes and our face shape changes as well in the same way that we see domesticated species changing as becoming flatter. We're kind of losing our brow ridges. The teeth are becoming smaller. So you can kind of see the changes taking place in our anatomy and you can see the changes. Yeah, we really don't look like we could kill anybody with our faces. (laughs) No, that's very true. We really don't. Well, actually, yeah, canines reduced quite a bit earlier than that. But yeah, we're not made for your kind of biting your way through like an opponent are we it's not a common form of violence so like (laughs) but like yeah and then also in the archaeological record we've got those movement of materials more contacts you know from being quite inbred we start to see like you know species moving around lots more much reduction in, in in breeding lots of breeding between populations so there's that whole message of things changing across several different lines of evidence. So what do you mean when you say like we became domesticated? I love the idea of being more mm. like a dog because I love dogs. <laughs> yeah, I love dogs too. Um, well, the kind of changes we see in domestic animals are all about being a bit more socially tolerant. But also, I mean, if we look at dogs, they're a bit more needy as well, aren't they? So they're kind of like very happy generally to like meet other dogs and to meet other people. Friendly. I mean, you know, one of the classic terms is like humans become friendlier. But I think there's more to it than just friendly, because if we look at like wolves can like, you know, they're, they're kind of a little bit quite fine by themselves. Thank you very much. Whereas dogs have that kind of neediness for human contact and, you know, what we see with humans as well, I think, is not just this friendliness, but also this drive to find other people to be friends with. Like, it's not just that you can be friends, it's that you need friends. You know, I, okay, that maybe I think proof. this is fascinating and I'm really curious about this yeah, because yeah. I sometimes feel like my my feelings, my anxiety, my neediness is like one of my worst qualities, right? Like, I feel oh. bad about it, I feel self-conscious about it, and hearing you say that like neediness and 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 wanting wanting to be connected to other people is like baked into our bodies i'm so curious about what that means and and how you find that in the archaeological record um and what the benefits are of that well actually there seems to be quite a lot because of course you've got to remember evolution is about isn't about making her life kind of fun and easy it's about kind of 
things that help you survive. And actually, yeah. if you're a little bit needy and you want to go out and meet people and it matters to you to form these connections and you really don't do well being lonely, then you make connections outside your group. And we see in the archaeological record, you start to see aggregation sites. You know, these are places where people come together periodically in a big group and they must kind of need to do that. And yet that's costly. They're traveling a long way. You know, they want to kind of make friends with other people. They so kind like of want to the feel prehistoric version of like a, like a rodeo convention where people come from yeah. neighboring towns to come see something or be a part of something. Exactly, exactly. And if you think that's a little bit like, you know, our domestic dogs are really not happy being left at home the entire time, are they? They're just a bit yeah. miserable and lonely. And it's really like, you know, it's that kind of, oh, when's someone coming along that I can like, you know, have a chat with and like interact with? And that's quite fundamental to us. And yeah, it makes us sort of sensitive, like prone to loneliness, prone to all sorts of stuff. But it also motivates us to get out and make friends and form connections. So what what specifically in the archaeological record like shows that? I'm so curious. It's it's the coming together frequently mm -hmm. and coming up like, like that people will travel long distances uh, to yeah. be near each other. Exactly. So there's kind of two things. What is the movement of things anyway? So okay. um, a good example comes from Ice Age Europe, where we see marine shells that are moving over a thousand kilometers and they're just moving along the connections between different groups of people. Okay. Um, but it's not just that things move. So things were moving. And that tells us that, you know, there are all these connections that are formed that like people, people are, are giving, giving shells as presents, right? Yeah, they're giving kind of gifts. And they're kind okay. of these shells are therefore moving along. Um, but as well as that, there are places where you've got it looks like more people have gathered together. Um, there's a site in northern Spain called Altamira where you know, you've got lots of different types of designs on there, the, the mobiliary, the personal art that they make. And oh. they come from all the different regions around. So it looks like people from different regions came around, came all to the same spot, you know, for some kind of rituals, party, social connections. And that's very different. We don't kind of see that happening earlier on in the archaeological record. That's so, f and so, and so you can also see evidence that they're like cooperating as opposed to like murdering each other and leaving their bones in the ground. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, you've got to think, we think that what happens might be something like what we see in modern day hunting and gathering populations, where we know if there's a famine, then in one particular area, then people can go and stay with their friends in another area because they've got all these connections and people yeah. care about them so they can look after them. And we think that that's one of the ways in which our species kind of survived in difficult environments because they knew they'd got friends and they knew that if there was a bad Aww. patch somewhere, you know, <laughs> then you go for visit your friends. You're not stuck in your region. And that means that's everybody nice. survives better. So all of this like sociability and the domestication that you were talking about earlier, how does that relate to you were saying that we had like changes in our face shape? Yeah. How does that relate? Okay. Well, exactly. Well, I think it's really fascinating because, okay, our, our faces become kind of flatter. And one of the things that changes is that human species before our species had their very big brow ridges just over the tops of their eyes. So a big bony structure over the tops of their eyes. It's quite a large sort of solid area. Um, like a built-in hat. Like what? Like Sorry, to like cover a built your in eyes hat. from the sun? Yeah, yeah. No, there used to be a theory that it was like for keeping the sun off, which is just like really, really no. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, not really. Like, um, okay. And, 
this kind of like bony structure um, we did some research ourselves actually trying to work out if there was a practical reason you know is it something to do with does it sort of like buttress the face to make it easier to chew or all those things and there isn't any real practical reason for the brow ridge um, and it looks like it performs some kind of function that we see in other primates which is all to do with like looking a bit scary being a bit intimidating oh. so, so, so chimpanzees have a bit of a ridge and they stretch their skin over it and it's kind of like makes a sort of it sort of flares and 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 sort of it's a little bit scary or a little bit alarming we've lost that instead we've got eyebrows and the really interesting thing about eyebrows is that we can move them a lot and when we move yeah. them we make lots of tiny tiny little expressions often of things like vulnerability or recognition they're really really important in being sociable but being sociable in a vulnerable way you know not sociable in a kind of like oh be scared of me way but in a way that you know we look really we can look really vulnerable with our eyebrows we do a little eyebrow flash when we recognize someone we flash our eyebrows and, and then that kind of shows oh yeah i'm friendly i recognize you that's so cool because like basically what it is like they this is proof on all of our faces that yeah. we have evolved to be vulnerable to let each other in to make connections with one another Absolutely. And I think that's not the only thing. We're also, we kind of blush when we're embarrassed. Well, embarrassment's a vulnerability. So it doesn't seem to be a good thing to blush because yeah. that's showing that you're embarrassed. And we cry when we're upset. Yep. And sh again, you'd have thought, well, if it was a really competitive environment, you just wouldn't want to be looking vulnerable. You wouldn't be lifting your eyebrows up. You wouldn't want to be blushing. You wouldn't want to be crying. But actually, we do yeah. all of those things because... People warm to us when we're vulnerable. We make connections that way. That's honestly makes me feel really happy. That's <laughs> oh, <good>. so cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I love that because I I I feel very strongly pulled towards the vulnerability of people and and being vulnerable myself and yeah. Oh, I just think it's so cool. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that I'm really curious about is one of the rumors that I've heard that that has, I think, sometimes that is uh, that is used to justify the idea that human beings are inherently bad or inherently evil. Right. Is the idea that we um, we genocided the Neanderthals. Is that true? What is the deal? Uh, with you that? know, OK, OK. So, Andra, what do you think might have happened? Uh I mean, it's tempting to say because like I think that the the emotional response that I want to have is like human beings saw Neanderthals and, and we all we looked different. And so we got angry at each other. And so they got in a big fight and they and they wanted to steal each other's resources. And so they murdered all of the Neanderthals so that they could take whatever they had. Oh, wow. That's what that's what I feel like the, the story sounds like it should be. Yeah, OK. Okay, okay, so that's not what we get in the archaeological record. But actually what happened is there was around about, we think around 15,000 year overlap between Neanderthals and modern humans in Europe. So they were living alongside each other for a very, 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 very long time. Um, and actually what happened between them was different in different places. Um, so if we look at the Near East, for example, it's very difficult to tell from any site whether it belonged to a modern human or a Neanderthal unless you have skeletal remains because the technology is pretty much identical for most of the time that they were there. Um, and then if you look at, say, Spain, there are times when there maybe seems to be a bit of a border. They maybe came to an arrangement, you know, where the Neanderthals are in the southern part and like you've got the modern humans further north. In France, you've got 
transitional industries amongst Neanderthals that look very similar to the types of personal ornaments like jewelry that that modern humans were making so they seem to have been like kind of cross you know they're crossing ideas together and we also have a lot of hybrids so um there's a certain amount of our DNA comes from Neanderthals but there's also direct evidence from DNA of specific skeletal remains of people that were hybrids between Neanderthals and modern humans or between Neanderthals and Denisovans, who are another group of people that, that lived further to the east. So there was a lot of interbreeding going on and hybrids were surviving clearly. So this this was probably very positive interbreeding. Um, so actually, there was an awful lot of like, presumably fairly dull from our point of view of wanting an exciting story but peaceful coexistence happening across so everybody was just kind of hanging out and banging making babies like like (laughs) living side by side the thing we've got the evidence for is the making babies yeah that's what we've got the best evidence for and like there's one skeleton which has a projectile point injury that was found in shanadar in iraq and there's speculation that, that injury was made by a modern human weapon. So that's one Neanderthal possibly attacked by one modern human. But that's uh-huh. that in 15,000 years, that's not a lot. Wow, that's an incredibly, incredibly small amount of yeah, data. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a load of evidence anyway. But still, you'd have thought if there was a lot of violence going on, we'd see a lot of evidence for violence. And we wouldn't yeah. have evidence for, like people adopting each other's technologies and and making babies together you expect the record to be different this giving me a little bit of a brain explosion to hear you explain like the response to my sort of fearful story about what happened between the neanderthals and the humans because it's interesting to think of the idea that like that that fear in my own brain is not is not just self-protective it is also reinforcing this narrative or this idea of violence that that like speeds the that pushes us towards that that like bottom of the barrel thinking as opposed to this sort of like collaborative vibe that we're trying to work towards which is what we see with the Neanderthals and humans yeah exactly I mean an awful lot of people I think it's only recently isn't it that we've started to question this idea that like as we've gone through time things have got better and better you know yeah and it's only recently we're sort of thinking hang on maybe you know things are not looking so great now has it really yeah. been getting better and better because maybe it hasn't and that just slight questioning allows us to look back and go you know this assumption that we've come from this violent past and only civilization has managed to keep control of it you know maybe completely wrong hmm. oh that's really interesting like yeah. that because that, yeah it does sound like you know, as much as I love modern medicine and stuff, it does sound like more of a vibe to just be chilling and hanging out and having sex and not murdering people. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, preferable. that's true. I mean, you know, we have to recognize people were people in the past. Yeah. But the structures around them seem to have been doing more to emphasize the caring and collaborative and sharing parts than maybe our societies do so people were people there will still have been mean people and there will still have been more caring people than other people and you know we're fundamentally the same biologically but the kind of surrounding environment can make a big difference to how we feel motivated and how we feel about the world so if we didn't kill the neanderthals or genocide them, the same thing <laughs> what did happen because from Where my understanding we are we are the much more measly physical species yeah 
Well, exactly. Well, of course, then we go back to that idea that the Neanderthals weren't very connected to each other. And of course, we know that the modern humans with their neediness were actually connected across large areas. So they were just going to be that much more resilient to uh, climate changes. But we don't actually know. There are lots of different theories. I mean, for example, uh, one speculation is that modern humans had a greater number of offspring. You know, we see with domesticated animals that they'll actually, you know, have estrus more often, so they'll have more offspring. So if that happened with modern humans, then our populations could have bounced back after things much quicker than Neanderthals did. And Neanderthals were very, very, very thin on the ground. You know, there's maybe, we don't know, but something like 10,000 Neanderthals in the whole of Europe at any one time, which is tiny. So modern humans are lighter. We're more gracile, we're less robust, you know, we're less heavy. Uh So more of us can survive within the same amount of of foodstuffs, as it were. So we live in kind of bigger groups. We can be more connected. You've got that neediness connecting between people. And Neanderthals are actually quite isolated. They had quite high levels of inbreeding. So they had problems with congenital deformities. And, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of the differences were to do with that physiological reactions and biology, perhaps, rather than anyone being cleverer than anyone else. That's really, okay, that's really fascinating to me because basically what that sounds like is like there's these lone wolf disassociated groups who like stick to their own and inbreed so they don't have to like, uh, you know, go out into the world and meet other people. And they didn't do as well as as like the soft, gentle people who like to bang, basically. Yeah, (laughs) there is that. Yeah, that's the way to look at it. So like basically (laughs) the more social we are, the more we interact with other people, the less uh, the less incest we're doing. That is true. Yeah, I mean, and, and and you know, the incest is a big problem for Neanderthals. So the whole sociability thing also has that fortunate side effect of reducing inbreeding. Yeah, which I I prefer. I enjoy. Thumbs up to reducing inbreeding. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a big deal. We should all go out and do our bit for reducing inbreeding. <laughs> This piece of your research that I'm super curious about that we're kind of dancing around in terms of like how human beings help each other, right? Yeah. Um, is the idea of how in the in the record we have helped um, like disabled groups because now, mm-hmm. especially like in light of the pandemic, I think there's this feeling of like we're sort of willfully sacrificing the health and well-being of of people who are more vulnerable. And that is really scary for a lot of us, especially those of us who are vulnerable uh, or disabled in some way. And so I'm curious, like, what does the research say about about how we have supported each other over the time? Yeah, well, actually, um, again, you'd be really surprised by how much evidence there is for care for the vulnerable. There is actually a reason for it, and we'll come around to that. But, you know, from around about two million years ago, we've got evidence in the archaeological record of people who were ill or injured and started to be looked after. Um, And it can extend as we go through time. They're being looked after for longer and longer. So there's a really famous example of a Neanderthal from Shanadar in Iraq. Um, And he was uh, blind in one eye, probably deaf, had one withered arm and one withered leg. And he seems to have looked after for about 10 to 15 years. So, you know, there's not a lot that was able to sort of function and and forage. And, you know, he can't have been looking after himself with that kind of level of impairments. 
So, and we see, we did some research and we found about 32 cases of probable care amongst Neanderthals. And, you know, that's in most of the skeletons actually have suffered some injury and then been looked after by the rest of the group. So actually care for the vulnerable seems to have been a really big part of our human evolutionary story. Um, And you might question, I mean, I think our probably kind of modern viewpoints thinks, well, surely this is a waste of effort. But you've got to think, actually, there are two things that matter. One is that people won't be making calculated decisions about who to care for. It's like it's going to be driven by our emotions. We evolved to be driven by our emotions. Yeah, so nobody's by, like sitting down with a spreadsheet and being yeah, like, well, Jim is be, taking a lot of food. So Exactly. That's not going to be the way things are going to be working. So like the, if, if you are more motivated to care for more people in the group, it means that you can take more risks in hunting. It means that you can keep some of the elderly. You can pass uh, in your group. You can pass learning on between generations. And um, actually, we're not totally unique in that. So African wild dogs, they routinely look after their ill and injured group members. And that's because they're really collaborative and they hunt together. And the loss of any one has a big impact on the group. So looking after anyone who's ill makes sense. I mean, they don't calculate whether they're going to survive or not. And clearly Neanderthals weren't calculating whether they're going to survive or not. But it's just having that motivation is an advantage, actually, when you're a small group of people that depend on each other, that collaborate to survive. But it's not just that. It goes back to what we were saying before. If you're quite vulnerable and yeah. everyone, how everyone around you feels towards you really matters, well, then what does it do to you to see the vulnerable in your group being abandoned? That would like really make you scared. It would make you much less willing to be caring or trusting of everyone else. So the whole act of caring for the vulnerable also has these kind of knock on. It's like ripple effects, doesn't it? It's not yeah. just about the practicality. It's about it what sort emotional of sense of safety. stuff you're setting up. Yeah, it's about making people yeah. feel safe as well. Yeah, because, it, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Like, I will exactly. one day be the person who is vulnerable. So, and it also seems kind of like, because you were talking about that one person in the in the record yeah. uh, who had a lot, of, uh, a lot of different disabilities that would have probably made it uh, impossible for them to hunt, right? Yeah. Um, but basically, it sounds like kind of what you're saying is like, it's very likely that they were contributing socially, emotionally, in terms of caring for children, or in some other way, they were contributing something to the society. And kind of not exactly, because what I'm saying is that from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense to care, because mm-hmm. if you lose anybody, it's a problem. But you're not going to evolve. This is back to, we don't evolve the calculation. We're not going to evolve, okay, shall we abandon so-and-so and keep going with so-and-so? Because that doesn't lead to trust and, like, connection. Oh, okay, that just leads to, like, okay. I mean, and today, if if one of the great examples is if you, if you say, if any of your yeah, potential friends said, I've, I've selected you for a friend because I think of this, this, and this. <laughs> And I think we'll have a reciprocal <laughs> relationship. I mean, no, like, you know, yeah. that's not how we make friends. That's not how we make connections. It's, it's not how it works. So, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we evolved to have the emotions to care for people because at the end of the day, they work because everybody in the group needs to, you know, it really matters to keep the group together. And that's why they work. But it doesn't mean that on the spot, they thought like that. 
any more than we think like that. You know, because we don't, yeah. do we? I mean, nobody. I mean, even if, you know, I would be embarrassed to even talk about the idea that we might calculate what our elderly relatives might be giving to us. I mean, even just thinking about that, would make people <laughs> think, oh, she was a horrible person. She talked about that. Oh, God, you know, how did everybody go near her? Look at how horrible. You know, we don't even want to think in those terms because people wouldn't yeah. trust us if we did. At our core, does that mean deep down, do we think that deep down beneath the emotions that the reason I'm like being friends with my neighbor is because somewhere deep inside, I feel like if the famine comes, we'll help each other. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you feel that. It's just that those were the evolutionary pressures which made you feel like you want to help your neighbor. Mm-hmm. The oh, people yeah, in our past who didn't want to help their neighbors didn't do so well in the famine and we don't have them around anymore. The, the way you describe that just kind of elucidated for me what you're trying to what I think maybe I'm, yeah. I'm supposed to, I'm trying to hear from this, which is like, um, it's not that it's not that my brain is doing this because I want to get something from other people. My no, brain is no, doing this because the people who did this without a desire to get something from other people were yeah. the ones who survived and propagated their genes. Exactly. And we know that today people make those judgments. Like we don't like people who we feel are calculating the benefits that might they might get from a relationship with us. Like, you know, we don't like those people. If we think they're being calculating, that's like that that's that's not friendly. Yes. We don't Out here in LA them. it's called aggressive networking. I was yeah. gonna say it's yeah, weird because Mark and I are in LA, we're in the entertainment industry and, and there is you know, there is this like pervasive vibe i also think yeah. maybe this is very american there's this pervasive vibe of like people do talk openly about what you can get from each other and, and, and mining each other for value and oh. it does feel like shit to hear people talk about it but it's been so normalized i think in mm -hmm. my experience that that like even though i don't like it i i've just sort of accepted it as like well that's how human beings are Ooh, and it's so. it's very refreshing to hear that like that is sort of a superimposition on top of yeah. our 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 core reality. Like that 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 is something that I can let go of because I think in American culture and in LA culture maybe too, we mm. talk so much about things in terms of value. We like value mm. is a big a big vibe in America, and um, I know it feels disgusting, but I, it never even really occurred to me that it was possible to let go of because here it's just like that's that's the narrative right the narrative is that like well we we evolved to to take from each other and i think i think what's so fascinating about what you're saying is essentially like we didn't we evolved to yeah. give to each other without without calculation i think that's absolutely right but it's like fear and competition those kind of yeah. environments can push us into something else. I have a, a, a really funny example. I have we we had we were told, oh, you should make more of your research. You should get out there and make more of your research. And so <laughs> we had these people who came and said to us, like, you know, you should be more confident. And and like, you know, instead of just doing this, like, kind of, yeah, well, I might have published something on that. You should be more confident. And I said, and I was like, great. So you want me to be more confident about my publication about humility? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly how am I meant to proudly and with confidence tell everybody how great. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's here too. You know, it's that kind of like, 
maybe in a different way, but it's that kind of like, you should go and shout about how great you are. And it's just like, I do not want to. No, but yeah. you have to. And it's like, oh, really? You know, how valuable your stuff is or whatever. And it's tiresome. And it doesn't feel natural, does it? It doesn't feel like a natural way to relate yeah. to people. It's not how we relate to our kind of true friends, is it? I mean, like with your true mm. friends, you're there going, oh, I don't know whether anyone's ever going to read this. Like, you know, or oh, I don't yeah. really know. I mean, you're really honest about how you feel, you know, and it's not really the true connection. We don't connect to people when we feel we have to tell them how great we are. The number of conversations I had with our producer, Mervyn, about this very podcast in that exact light uh, yeah. is fascinating. <laughs> Just like, yeah, because because when I am with the people that I, I, I feel I can be vulnerable around, I'm not trying to like hype myself up. I'm trying yeah. to connect. Yeah, exactly. And using your eyebrows and getting embarrassed and crying yes. and all of those things we've oh. been made, we've been built to do. I am crying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I am very good at crying. It's oh, one that's of my very top good. Traits. That's good though. Crying's good. Crying's good. Oh, I love that. I love that. And that makes me feel, honestly, this whole thing makes me feel very, um, just like relieved because I think that like I... I feel like I receive a lot of cultural messages that are about how like the natural softness and vulnerability and like tearfulness mm. that I have, which is like so omnipresent. Like I'm literally tearing up right now. Like I, oh. I, I'm just so like this, right? I'm so soft. And yeah. I have felt for so much of my life this, um, this feeling that that's bad and that's dangerous oh. and that's wrong and oh no, it's so not because you have more you yeah. have far more genuine relationships with people for being like that. Mm. Yeah, and I, I do, you. I do absolutely have those, but it's it's not always something that I think I I value in myself, and I think I don't always feel other people valuing it in me, oh. and so the idea that you know from a from a long-standing human perspective, from all of the people who who came before me, you know, yeah. back the people who are just bones now, right? Like, yeah. this is important. This is an important part of me, and it's not something that I'm supposed to just pretend doesn't exist or try and hide or try and be afraid of, right? There's, there's real real meaning in terms of yeah. my own personal life and also in terms of like the good of of all of us for me to be able to touch this that's very true because like i think the kind of good for the future is all about being able to be like that so that we respond to people genuinely isn't it that that's that's where we need to get back to almost i mean if you look at neanderthals so many of them were looking after these yeah, a lot of individuals with all sorts of illnesses and injuries, despite the fact it was really difficult to find food, it was really tough for them to do it. And that's just a fundamental part of being human. We absolutely do give a huge amount for people we care about. That's what's so special about us. And none of the, you know, I don't really think that in our evolutionary past, kind of being clever was nearly as important as actually connecting to people and caring about them. That's what really made us survive. But yeah. We have this kind of myth in our modern thing that you have to be kind of impressive and clever, and I think that that's almost like a new <laughs> thing, you know. And then we impose yeah. it on the evolutionary path. Oh, look, they had big brains and they were capable of making all this technology, and that wasn't the thing that mattered. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful, and it and it kind of for me is very pressure relieving because yeah. in this version of looking at the human record from the beginning of of what we have, like 
being a person is not about uh, being the most impressive person or the most uh, accomplished person or the most braggy person, right? Being yeah. a person is about is about being connected. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I often say to people, I'm quite lucky because I have dyslexia. And what that means is it's impossible for me to be too much of a stuck up academic because <laughs> I'll still email people and it'll be like, did they reply? You might like to know you spelt that wrong. And they're like, no, I'd really rather not know. But it's just yeah. kind of, you know, there's only so far I can ever go <laughs> by thinking that I'm cleverer than anybody else because my dyslexia will just bring me back down to size. But that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So, um, that's so fascinating. Oh, 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 oh perfect. I'm barking. Your Sorry. dog is telling Wookie. me, like, girl, look at the clock. Look at the clock. Uh, <laughs> I'll just put her downstairs. Okay, I'll be one second. Oh, yeah, I'll no no back. problem. There we go. That's... Now she's barking downstairs. <laughs> this is so cute. <laughs> um, I have, like, two two questions to wrap us up. Okay. Um, the first is just to kind of, uh, you know, put a fine point on it to solidify the answer, like, can yep. you summarize how sociability has helped us survive as human beings? Okay, so um, we've got all sorts of evidence in the relatively recent evolutionary past, like after around about 100,000 years ago, that people were connecting much more to people who weren't their family members, didn't live in their group. So materials are moving around and like our face shape is changing, our genetics is changing. And that was yeah. actually very important because it enabled us to act a bit like a single set of people who were collaborating together. So it's a famine in one area, perhaps. And those people from that area could go and live with their friends who lived in distant places, who actually genuinely cared about them. And the important thing is about connections where people genuinely care each other about each other. It's not like about having colleagues or people you yeah. know. It's about having people who care about you who you don't see every day and aren't necessarily members of your family, but you kind of really want to go and see. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. All right. And then also the question we ask, we try and ask our experts also at the end is, so if the true nature of humans, it sounds like this thing that I was anxious about at the beginning, this idea that people are fundamentally bad, we're not anxious about it. Uh, so what does make you anxious? <laughs> What, what oh, are the things that scare okay, you in the okay. world? I'm quite capable of quite a lot of anxiety. I mean, I think <laughs> over too. the past over the past few years, I've been very anxious about climate change, but then along came mm -hmm. COVID, so I got anxious about that instead, which meant I was less anxious about climate change because COVID was in the way of the climate change anxiety. Yes. But then after COVID kind of receded a bit, climate change came back as the big thing to be anxious about. And then, of course, there's the, oh my goodness, could it be World War Three, which comes along and slightly displaces the climate change. <laughs> so I've now decided that the whole thing is wrapped up around climate change and our attitude to nature and the fact that we exploit it and that kind of competitive mentality thing because pandemics are often related to climate change and I'm pretty sure the whole Ukraine thing has got some climate change background in controlling the crops and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So therefore, climate change makes me anxious because I'm bundling up all my other anxieties in that one thing so I can efficiently now only worry about one thing. <laughs> well, that's very fascinating. And also, I think that's it, it brings me back to all of your research, because we've we've talked about climate change a little bit on the podcast before. And what we came back to in that regard was 
community and personal connections are what's going to get us through climate change and what's going to help us move forward. And so it's really fascinating that like your research is a part of the puzzle of like reminding us that we are social beings who who are here to connect, not necessarily to achieve, to connect, to love each other and to care for each other. And that that I think based on our other conversations about climate change with other experts, it's like, that's, that's where we need to go in order to, to get some real meaningful movement on climate change. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Because that connection between us and each other is also reflected, the things that go wrong with that are also going wrong with our connections to nature and the environment. Like, I think that Mm. it is all bound up, isn't it? Like, you know, if you're feeling kind to everybody else around you, you're also kind of kind to the animals around you. And you also have that motivation to care in a more general sense as well. Yeah, yeah. So all we need to do as a species is tackle the ever-present feeling that we need to be achieving and fighting each other and instead focus on our our uh, our innate sense of kindness and generosity and caring towards one another. That sounds good. Sounds a good plan. That's a, that's my dream. That's a dream. That's the dream, baby. Yeah. We're going to get there. We'll get there. We will get there. This is so wonderful. I'm so grateful we got to talk to you today, Penny Spikins. Um, And again, everyone, this was Penny Spikins. She is a professor of archaeology of human origins at the University of York. And I am so excited. I am really looking forward to reading her new book. And it's called Hidden Depths, The Origin of Human Connection. And it's open access. So any of us can just Google Penny Spikins Hidden Depths and read it, which is so exciting. Brilliant. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Oh my gosh, Mark, that was a fascinating conversation. It truly, totally changed my view on human evolution <laughs> and our current, uh, where we are currently. Yeah. And, and how how we connect with others and why. The thing that I keep going back to in my brain is I, I obviously love the idea that being needy is like an inherent value in human human beings. Right. That vibes with me very hard. Love it. That it's not a weakness. That it's not a weakness. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we evolved to yeah. do this. We evolved to want to be around other people. And also, I think that the thing that really just makes me feel so excited and interested about her work is, is the idea that, like, we didn't do that in a calculated fashion. Like, that that wasn't about uh, us trying to figure out what we could get from each other. Right. Which we're, we're, you know, as we sort of mentioned, it's like we're both immersed in a culture out here in Los Angeles in show business where yeah. um, there's this energy all the time of like sort of pretending to create genuine connections yes. because you're trying to get something from the other person. And right? it feels so forced and fucked up and uncomfortable. Yes. And you can and and the truth is like she was right like when I when I connect with people who I who I can tell are trying to like network I like yeah. my brain sort of like rolls into the back of my head because it yep. feels so uncomfortable right whereas yeah. like people who like want to be genuine friends like you and me like we've known each other for a while now and it's like it's just it's so nice yeah and we it, listen I've never I've never thought more about my eyebrows and the motion <laughs> of them. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'll never see zoom, my like, eyebrows the same way after this conversation. It's also really interesting for me because I tend to wear glasses that like cover my eyebrows a little bit, and I wonder yeah. if part of the reason why I feel more comfortable in glasses is because I feel uncomfortable about my level of vulnerability, which is very high in comparison Maybe. to a lot of people. 
And my forehead too. I mean, I feel like I have a gigantic forehead, but yeah. now I'm learning. I'm learning. It could have been worse. It could have been it worse. It could have been so much worse. You could have had a really intense, <laughs> scary forehead that was meant to murder us all. But instead you have a nice soft forehead that is meant to like say, hey, I'm Mark and I want to chill. I'm Mark. I want to chill. Here's a big forehead. Here's eyebrows moving up and down on that forehead to express my vulnerability. Yeah. Let's <laughs> hunter gather together, baby. That's what those eyebrows say. <laughs> And the, and the whole message that this sort of stereotype, the story that we all believe that we were, that humans were barbarians. And as time has gone on, we've gotten softer, softer and more domesticated. It's not, it's not as severe. It's not entirely true from yeah. what she has learned. And yeah. that's a massive surprise to me. It's it's just going to make me I also really the the thing that I I think I'm going to be thinking about a lot is the idea that like there's this there's this thing deep down inside of us that is very scared and and trying to protect us by being very uh trying to protect us through that kind of like othering violence um but that we know that that didn't work with the Neanderthals right that the, that them staying in their own little social networks um, and, and inbreeding, uh, yeah. did not work. Right? right. And it turns out that like, uh, everybody's desire to like hang out and meet each other and have sex with people they're not related to is like, that's solid. We should go towards that direction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Free love and connection helps us to survive. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, you're the best. Uh, what about what are the things that we should promote for you? Let's talk about the sketch school, which I think is so awesome and has been a sponsor on the show before. Uh, and it's a really great place to learn about uh, sketch comedy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, please go to the sketch the sketch You can check out all of our upcoming comedy writing classes, including free workshop that I'll be teaching myself and would love to have you in if you want to try out what we do, thesketchschool.com. Yeah. And I got to say, Mark is a really, really great teacher. He was one of my teachers uh, at the beginning. I think he is very smart and interesting. He does some great work with political satire and all sorts of other kind of like, uh, he gives some really good formulas about how to start thinking about sketch comedy. So even if you've never tried before, I honestly really recommend it because uh, when you walk away from a class with Mark, you walk away with some uh, concrete tools for how to how to how to start thinking about how you can write sketch comedy. Oh, thanks so much for saying that, Andre. And yes, all experience levels are welcome. We will meet you at where you are, wherever you are, and uh, and work together from there. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to promote, Mark? Where can no, people find great. you on social media? Yeah, I'm I'm at Mark Wars, M-A-R-C-W-A-R-Z. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Please won't someone tell me I'm okay. <laughs> Maybe take one was good. Can I say this right? Andra. Is that right? Andra. 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 Yeah. Perfect. But you can probably get away with it by being British, so. <laughs> I could try that, but I'll try Andra. I'll I'll try. <laughs> uh, think about my my birth announcement said say ah now say Andra. Okay. Andra. I was thinking actually Sandra, if you were quite a posh person. Oh. Yeah, think about me as super posh. Me yeah. in my pink overalls, super yeah. posh. Yeah. <laughs>